Okay, we're going to get right to it. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 15. It's a familiar passage. Let me read it for you. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to loot. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful. In its time. Also, he's put eternity in a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which has already has been, that which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? Oh. Almost everybody, my wife immediately puts up her hand because it's one of her favorite places to go, right? No. <laughs> I, I love Niagara Falls, and Kelly's been very patient and allowed me to take her there. I think we've been there twice, maybe three times. Here we're going next week, right? <laughs> yeah, but, I, you know, the first time I saw it, I, I was just absolutely entranced. And I'm standing there at the edge of the falls, and I'm looking at this incredible volume of water just spilling over this hill. And I, I, it would, to me, it was absolutely mesmerizing, the whole thing. And the little pool at the bottom and the mist rising up. And, you know, at light in the night, they put the lights on and everything. Well, after I got saved, uh, we went. And I, I looked at it a little bit differently. And, I, you know, now I'm looking at it in terms of creation and it looked to me like God had formed the Great Lakes, and he made Lake Ontario and, and Lake Erie, and just put his thumb down in between the two of them and said, there's a little indentation. <laughs> and now the water flows from one to the other. And, and it, you know, for me, it was absolutely awe-inspiring. What do you stand in awe of? What gets your attention? What causes you to be moved emotionally? What fills you with wonder and amazement? 
This is Catching the Wind, part three. We've been going through Ecclesiastes. It's a genre of literature called wisdom literature. We would call it street smarts, just kind of practical wisdom, meant to be a handy reference for how things work in the world, but not a set of authoritative promises from God. We've got to be careful, particularly when we get to Proverbs. They're not promises. They're kind of suggestions, general guidelines. But uh, generally, if you follow those guidelines, things will work in your favor, but it's not a guarantee that there will. Still, there are several profound truths that we find throughout Proverbs, in particular here in Ecclesiastes. And and this book is a, a perspective, an overview of living in the world, living in this earthly realm that we're in, living apart from God. Our narrator is teaching a young generation uh, of leaders who are living in prosperous times, yet they're living under the thumb of Egypt, some oppression. It's around 400 BC. And he's using the teaching of Solomon, his ancestor, Uh, to warn them about becoming too obsessed with the things of the world, with everything the world has to offer. He wants them to keep their lives focused on God, not on themselves and their success and everything that they've done. So it's a danger that we still face today, particularly here in the United States. We, we, We live like kings and queens compared to the rest of the world. And living in an affluent society lends itself to zeroing in on what everything everybody else has. That's what all of our advertising is about, isn't it? We zero in on what everyone else wants. And, and in doing that, it's easy to shove God to the back burner. Well, he's not my priority today. See, that's exactly what happened to Solomon who in the last chapter, chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, was feeling useless and dry, concerned that all he had worked so hard for wasn't making him happy any longer. It wasn't fulfilling him and would eventually go to another and ultimately would end up back with God. So the thing we know about Solomon is regardless of how he feels, he knows who God is, doesn't he? So in the 7th century, Solomon was struggling because he had turned away from God and was trying now trying to figure out his purpose in life. And he was doing it all independent of his relationship with God. God just wasn't in the mix. Israel, called Palestine back then, was struggling with the same problem in the 3rd and 4th century B.C. Times were prosperous, fortunes were being made, Businesses were growing, but the people had once again drifted away from God just the same way that Solomon had. They were apart from him because it was very easy to fall apart from God when times are good. Isn't that the history we see in the Old Testament? God's people get in trouble. They cry out to him. He rescues him. And shortly after that, they go searching for other gods. They're doing it again. So, God was being taken for granted. There was no reverence for their father in heaven. They knew he was there. They knew about him. They had learned about him. He was in their literature. He was in their synagogues. He was in their teaching. But there was no sense of transcendence. There was no awe 
for God, for who he was. So that had gotten to such an epidemic proportion that our teacher here, our narrator, feels it's necessary to present this raw, brutally honest review of Solomon's later writings and teachings because he allowed himself to do the same thing that they were doing. So the preacher's goal is first to provide a vivid picture of how hopeless life could be apart from God. Then direct his students' attention back toward this all-seeing, all-powerful, all-knowing God who created the universe. And he's going to follow that pattern several, several times throughout the book. And in today's text, he begins by talking about time. He's going to talk about time. Now, that seems fairly basic at first, but boy, you wait and see what he does with it. Because time influences our daily lives, every facet of them. So we're going to see two earthly perspectives on, on events in life, on time, and both apply directly to the rhythm of our lives and how God fits into that rhythm. We'll see a poem in verses 1 through 8, one you're very familiar with. And then we'll see a payoff in verses 9 through 15 of Ecclesiastes 3. So let's take a look at this poem. It's an incredible poem that, that people wanted to say more than it actually says. And, and it actually does. It, it really does. But maybe not as much as some people would teach. Uh, I've been pouring through resources. And let me tell you something. There's some pretty wild stuff out there about what this poem means. Now, here's something that may surprise you if, if you're familiar with the passage. The real power in the passage is not in the poem. It comes with what's said immediately after the poem. <laughs> so we'll take a look at that. In the poem, time is mentioned 28 times. And, and it, it has 14 pairs of time, each one magnifying the other. It keeps building upon itself. And these are all multiples of seven. And so if we understand Hebrew literature, we know that seven is a really important number to the Hebrews. It's the number of completion. And when we see multiple sevens, it's the indication of perfection. So we're seeing a whole bunch of sevens here. And I've seen a lot of people try to go into deep metaphors. Uh, again, I've seen some pretty far-fetched ideas of what, what this all means. But I think it's better to take these poetic images and keep them simple. Just let them say what they say. Keep them easy to understand. There's nothing in here that would encourage us to dig deeper than the idea that there are appropriate times for everything. So I have a poem that covers the subject of time simply, completely, and perfectly. And the first verse sets the tone. For everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, now notice it's everything under heaven. We talked about this when, it, when, when the writer talks about under heaven. He's talking about the earthly realm, the, the horizontal relationships we have with each other. Not looking up. So it's on earth, not in heaven. Everything on earth has a time. Everything. Then it begins to go into a more detailed explanation, starting with this, a time to be born 
and a time to die. Now, that pretty much covers the totality of our human existence, doesn't it? I mean, it could end it right there. We don't decide when to be born. We don't get to pick that time. Contrary to what some believe, we don't decide either the time of our birth or the time of our death. Think about that over lunch. They're beyond our control. Time time just happens to us. Second half of verse 2, 2b, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. We have no control over this as well. Now, somebody's going to come, oh, yes, we do. We can create an environment. We can try to plant out a season when we can't plant. We can, it doesn't work. We can try to harvest too early or we can harvest too late. That doesn't work either. That's not how plants work. There's, there's an appropriate time for these things. Verse 3 says, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Now, this would have some cultural implications to the Palestinians in, in the 3rd century B.C. There's a right time to kill, like those instances of self-defense, like those times of war. And there's a time to heal, a time to preserve life, like when the war is over. Likewise, during a war, the cities, walls, buildings are broken down, and when peace comes, they're built back up. But it's not just pertaining to war and peace here. In ancient Palestine, in order to build and improve a city, uh, they they didn't tear everything down and move it out of the way. They would tear everything down and then build on top of it. That's when you hear Tel Aviv, it's talking about a city that's been built upon the previous city several times. That's what tell means. It's a dig. The correct time to break down and the right time to build up. Verse 4 says a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's an appropriate time to weep and appropriate time to, to express joy. Do either at the wrong time and not only would it be disrespectful, it might be hurtful to the people around you. We need to know the context of these things. The second half of the verse amps up the first half just a little bit, there are circumstances that warrant extreme, even heart-rending sorrow, and other times when exuberant joy is called for. We should know the difference. Verse 5 says, a time to cast away stones and the time to gather stones together. This is one of those verses that I've seen incredible uh, meaning ascribed to. I just don't think it's there. Because this verse would have a particular meaning to, to the Jews, to the Palestinians, even to the Egyptians, everybody who's living in that section of the world. Because before you could plow a field, it had to be cleared of stones. And if you've ever seen Israel, you know that there are a lot of stones. Uh, there, there are millions and millions of them, and some of them are very large. And it could be a huge job clearing that field, uh, a lot of hand labor, maybe even a few oxen, you would gather the stones off the field. And during a time of war, one of the strategies of warfare was that the enemy would come in and fill your field with stones. Now, the wars were a lot longer. They didn't last a couple of days or so. They were, and, and the idea was if we could put enough stones in the fields of the enemy, they couldn't grow field food and sustain themselves. 
They couldn't harvest their food. When the war was over, it was a time to clear the stones. The work of planting and harvesting had to begin right away because they would need the food. So the time to cast stones, time to gather them. Doing either at the wrong time would be absolutely disastrous. If you're trying to gather stones during a time of war, they're probably going to shoot you. <laughs> or maybe just use a sword and smite you. You know how much I love that word. 5B, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Hugging your enemy during a war could be questionable, dangerous. But when the war ceases, friendly relations can resume once again. But even more broadly, there's a time to embrace with weddings, uh, funerals, celebrations. And on the other hand, it would be foolish to embrace someone who had leprosy or had a fever. See, this is just practical stuff that we're talking about here. First half of six, a time to seek and a time to lose. Think about going through your house trying to find something that you lost. Maybe it's important to you. And you search and you search, and finally you've searched through everything. At some point, you have to admit, I can't find it. At some point, the searching has to stop. Going a little bit deeper, a, a time to keep and a time to cast away. The sailors on Jonah's ship, if you remember the story, were transporting cargo. And as long as the ship was running and was safe and everything, everything was fine. They kept the cargo. But when the ship was in danger, they jettisoned the cargo. It was weighing the ship down. And rather than go down into the deep with the, the cargo, they decided to get rid of the cargo and, and preserve their own lives. So we have to know when to let things go. And when to hold on to them, there's an appropriate time for both of those. Verse 7, a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Well, this is another cultural situation. Back then, bad news would leave someone to rend their garments. They would rip their garments. Not just an expression of grief. We know that. We know that from Scripture. But it was a sign. It was a sign to the people around them. And, you know, this, is, this was a clannish culture. It was a sign to the people around them that I'm hurting, I'm mourning, because they would mourn as a village. They would mourn as a family. They would mourn as a clan. They would mourn, even if necessary, as a nation. So that torn clothing would, would mean that that it's time to be sorrow. It's time to grieve. Everyone grieved. Torn clothing was a sign of mourning for all. And after a period of time, usually about a month, the, the torn, they didn't just throw the stuff away. You couldn't do that. No, I'll get rid of this shirt. It is ripped. I'll just go down to the consignment store and get up another one. They would mend it. They would sew it back together. It was time to move forward and get on with life. And in relation to that rending and that sowing, there was a time to keep silent. We saw this with Job when he went through all of his losses. His friends came over. They sat with him for seven days and nights without saying a word. How many friends do you have that would do that for you? 
You see the, the environment they were in? They would sit there silently and share the grief, share in each other's sufferings, be there to mourn together. And when that period of mourning was over, when it was appropriate to speak, they would speak. And you know what? It took some compassion and some understanding to know when to be silent and when to speak. And at a time when it had become, just watch this. <laughs> because we sit there and go, okay, well, that's back then. We're in a time where it's totally acceptable to just blurt out anything you're thinking. <laughs> oh, I just read this. Well, I'm going to respond to that. A lot of wisdom in keeping silent. A lot of practical wisdom in knowing when to speak up. Verse 8 says, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And these two, these two phrases bring the poem to an end. This is the conclusion of the poem. And, and like the others, they're parallel phrases. They're right next to each other. The second one being more intense than the first. They're building on each other. What do we do with that? Okay, so time to love, time to hate, time for war, time for peace. What do we make of all these times, all of these various life events? It all sounds like a great bit of practical advice for the cycles and events of life. That's what we've been in, in the middle of Ecclesiastes, the rhythm of life. There's a little, if you, if, if you go back and take a look at chapter one, there's an echo of what the narrator says in the first 11 verses. The poem's designed to tell us that there's an appropriate time for everything that we do. But it also tells us that everything will come to an end. All of the good, all of the bad, it will all come to an end. Now, this is great, and we might kind of go, duh, but what do we do with this? Why is this important? How does this fit in with the main idea of the book, which is the emptiness of life apart from God? It actually seems to emphasize the whole point when you look at it objectively. Let's look at what Solomon concluded with this. This is the payoff section. In verse 9, he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Uh, again, this theme was set all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all his toil? And the anticipated response, the expected response is nothing. He gains nothing. Well, I didn't see that one coming. But he gains nothing. If you look at the poem, each individual phrase cancels out the next. A time to be born, a time to die. There's nothing left after that. A time to plant our flowers and a time to pluck them up. Nothing gained. A time to break down, a time to build up. Nothing changes. This just keeps getting worse and worse, doesn't it? What am I going to do with this? What gain have workers from their toil? Absolutely nothing. And up until this point, there's been no mention of why. No talk of why these times are listed and detailed. Just the fact that they are. 
They're just being. Now keep in mind, Solomon is searching for meaning in life, searching for purpose, and, and, and he's dry, he's apart from God, but even as we understand that, the poem should raise some questions. Where did these times come from? Who set them? Why have they been set? Now Solomon, the man, he knows the answers. He's got it. He's just not living in it. Look verse 10. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. The sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, one true God has set the times. Not only has he set them, he's made them beautiful. He's made them appropriate. He has made them proper. They are just the way that he wants them to be. And here... We see the raw beauty of the cycles of life, the cycles of creation, everything running like clockwork. We talked about this in chapter two, maybe sometimes seeming like chaos and confusion, but running to a certain rhythm determined by the creator of all things. And that's not all God has done, 11b. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has given us. He's given us a sense of time. We are acutely aware of it. A sense of the past and the future. A sense that there is something more. But without full knowledge of what it is. We just know it's out there somewhere. As long as we live within the rhythm of our own mortal lives, we will never understand the full extent. This is what the verse says. We will never understand the full extent of what God has done in the past, nor what he will do in the future. But we see the scope. We know there's a past. We know there's a future. We see the scope of it, but we don't see the fullness of it. We don't know the details. Well, what do we do with that? I'm feeling a little uncomfortable because I'm a guy who likes to know the details. How about you? Don't you want to know what's going to happen? Well, we know what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back. We just don't know what's going to happen between now and then. Verse 12. How do we respond to this practical wisdom? Solomon says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. 14a, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. We should enjoy what we've been given. This is what he's saying. We should enjoy our lot in life. Because just as God has set the times, he's given us not only life. We know God's given us life, amen? But he's also given us our lives. He's also given us all the circumstances in them. God not only set it all in motion, he rules over it all. He's a sovereign God. He rules over everything. He even rules over time. 
I have a hard time separating God from time in my mind. I don't know how you do with that. Why? Why has God done all this? Why did he create the world, establish the rhythm of time? Why did he command a beginning and an end to all earthly things? Why does he rule sovereignly over it all? Verse 14b, God has done it so that people fear him. He's done it so the people fear him. Let's take a look at this word for fear, because Proverbs 1 tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of all knowledge. Some translations say wisdom. So are we called to be afraid of God? No, that's not what's happening here. This word describes an extreme reverence, an understanding of what it means to be in the presence of holiness, perfection, beauty, purity. It's the idea of being struck speechless, that feeling you get when you see something so beautiful, so pure, so overpowering, that you know that you're never going to be the same again. It's a life-changing moment. This, This is why God does what he does. This is the primary theme of this passage. Maybe it's the theme of the entire book. So that you and I can stand in awe of God. So that we can revere him in such a manner that his holiness and beauty changes us forever. Now we're into some meaty stuff, aren't we? Solomon's on a roll. He's got one more thing to say about time. Verse 15, that which has already been has been. God sees the past as something current. That which is to be already has been. He sees the future, watch this, the same way. God experiences the past and the future as the present. Whoa. And God seeks what has been driven away. You see, with God, nothing is lost. Nothing is vanity. Nothing is in vain. Nothing is futile. It all has Meaning and purpose. And God, watch, watch this. Everything in our lives has meaning and purpose. Do you understand that? All the good stuff, all the bad stuff, all the joyful stuff, all the painful stuff, it all has meaning and purpose. And God has designed it so that we would stand in awe of him. Wow. Wow. He inspires all. Solomon's conclusion, the payoff to this poem, is that God uses everything for his purposes, for his glory. Often have we heard that. It's one of the primary messages of the Bible. So there's our two perspectives on time, our two perspectives on earthly events. The poem. Nothing, nothing really too profound there. I mean, you can read a lot into it. Again, people have tried. There's just simple beauty to taking it just as it's written. 
There's a, a good time and a bad time for everything. There's a rhythm to life. Everything has a beginning. Everything has an end. And seen apart from God, we now begin to understand a little bit about Solomon's emptiness and his dryness. And knowing that no matter what he's done, it will end for him, just like it will for everyone else without God. There is no transcendence. There is no awe. There's no time when his heart is moved so deeply that he sees the finger of God interacting with creation. We've seen the payoff. God is the God of all time, past, present, and future. So much so that he exists apart from it. He's not subject to time. He is the master of time. Meanwhile, while we live here on earth, we're totally under the rule of time, aren't we? Right now, I'm looking at my watch. How much time do I have left? (laughs) I mean, it dominates our entire being. God is so sovereign over time, and we, brothers and sisters, are not. We can't change the past. And here's the big surprise. We can't change the future. It all belongs to him. It's all in his hands. You see, Solomon's struggle, he has distanced himself from the God who governs time. Time governs everything mortal man does. So now Solomon is distant from even why he's alive. He's lost his reverence for God. Him, God has become an afterthought. He's putting on a back burner. Second, Third, maybe worse in his thinking. Solomon lost the idea of transcendence, lost the idea that there was something more, something bigger. And when he lost that, when he lost the awe of God, the man who had everything lost everything. What do you stand in awe of? Once I realized what was happening at Niagara Falls, I realized it was just a shadow. It was just a peak of the glory of God. Moving water in his time to the place that he designed it to go, at the speed that he wanted it to go. And that's the type of awe that we will one day experience. And brothers and sisters, if we pay attention to what our scriptures say, we can experience it right. Think about this. He's the master of time. That has incredible implications. You understand that he created the universe in his time, planted the two trees in the garden in his time, allowed the fall to occur in his time, brought the Savior to remedy all that in his time, in his perfect time, to God, it's all one thing, all bound together by the sovereign will commanded by his sovereign grace. Oh, I love this. Takes the pressure off me. All I need to do is trust him. But in order to trust him, I have to understand that he transcends Everything that I understand about reality, past, present, future, they're all the same to him. They're all occurring right now. 
That makes me have a headache. And God hears that and he smiles. He said, I know. (laughs) And what he says to you today, that may give you a headache. But remember, I am the God of all time. I'm the God of every event that has ever occurred in your life. And my intention, if you believe in my son, who came in my time, you know, I would rather Jesus would have come in the 22nd century where we have Zoom. But it came in the first, God's timing. And God says, if you believe in him, then one day you will stand in front of me and experience the awe of who I am. Meanwhile, you get to practice. Meanwhile, you get to trust me for everything that's happened in my time in your life, because I have designed it to bring you to me, to stand in my glory and bask in it. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are the God of time. And even as we sit here and begin thinking about the rest of our day and what we will do with the rest of our time, maybe some of us are wondering how much time we have. Maybe some of us are sitting here pondering our own mortality. And we are reminded by these scriptures, Father, that time is yours. And that our dilemma is not trying to figure out how much time we have, but how we can give it all to you. For your glory. For that moment we stand before you. Now, Father, we pray that you would bless our fellowship, bless the food, bless the people that have been working so hard downstairs to prepare a meal for us. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Everybody's welcome to come downstairs. We've got plenty of food. Love to spend some time with you. Thank you. Bill Schwetke, thank you for tuning in online. Bill Schwetke will be preaching next week. What are you preaching on, Bill? Psalm 46, so you can prepare for that. If anybody wants to talk, I'll be right over here.